Let's pray, let's pray. And uh, Lord, we, we thank you for this season and for the way it just warms our hearts. And we pray that we will all hear what you have to say to us this evening through these, through these amazing words that we're about to hear. Amen. Um, and we have, I think, we've been hearing a lot, haven't we, this year especially about how um, tough Christmas is for so many people because of the, the cost of living and so on. And to the extent that some people I've heard, I've heard say that they just wish Christmas wasn't happening at all this year because they're so worried about how they're going to pay for it. But that is true. But of course, Christmas is notoriously, is it not, um, a difficult time of year because people traditionally get stressed out often at Christmas time. Um, not just because of the finances, but um, I think often it's because of this pressure they feel to, to love people, to get on with people over Christmas. And I remember that as a child. Um, the, the source of the friction in sort of childhood Christmas gatherings in our family was often my, my granddad on my mum's side. And I have warm and positive memories of granddad now, granddad beard as he was, but he, he was a, a strong character and he had strong fixed views and he had a temper but also a wicked sense of humour. The trouble is you never quite knew which version you were going to get any particular Christmas. This was the era, the era that kind of sums it up, the period of Grandad being with us um, was when we, we were a typical family, I suppose, in that we only had one television. It was just the norm. You only had one television. Later on, we magically somehow got two televisions and that transformed everybody. But when, for these many years, we only had the one television, Grandad would dictate what we all had to watch over Christmas. My brother and I had no say in what, what we could watch. And our tastes, of course, were quite different to those of the grown-ups, as you can imagine. But as I got older, as we tend to do, um, and one year on Boxing Day, it kind of came to a head. And this was the year of the disaster over the pickled beetroot and the pristine white tablecloth, which didn't end well. But everything came to, to a head over the television that year as well. Um, and it became a kind of coming-of-age drama um, for me because I was heir to the extensive family estates and riches. Um, so I was at the heart of it because by then I was a teenager and I was doing, well into my teens, I was doing A-level music. And obviously I was into prog rock and opera. Who wouldn't be at that stage? Actually, I now see that they're quite closely related, prog rock and opera. But anyway... I wanted to go and do music at university, and I, therefore I felt justified in getting the whole family, I mean, I feel terrible about this now, making the whole family watch Mozart's opera, The Magic Flute, when they wanted to watch the Generation, generation Game or <laughs> whatever it was. So we had this weird mix at the time of a kind of drama over my coming of age, and all of us trying to get on at Christmas. And I wasn't even doing the cooking. So here's our reading, which is from this series called Incarnate. Is there a reading? Paul says, what I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also, when we were underage, 
we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. Slight differences in translation here, but nothing major. But when the time set, um, the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. One thing to say with all of that is that um, it, goes, it, it seems a bit sort of... Um, a bit retro in that it keeps talking about sons all the time, whereas modern versions talk about sons and daughters. But actually, they're sticking to the word son in this passage because they're trying to emphasize that in that Greco-Roman world, it was sons who were heirs. So they want to stick with that idea because they might have also mentioned daughters who wouldn't have been heirs, if you see what I mean. These days, it's all changed. But that's why we get lots of sons in that passage. But anyway, we're in this series for Advent and Christmas called Incarnate. And there are three big themes that immediately, I think, jump out of those verses that I just read. Um, first is the idea that I alluded to earlier of being an heir, but underage, so you're like a slave. And then this is combined with the idea of adoption, even though they're not the same thing exactly. And the second big theme is Christmas, which I also alluded to. God sending his son. Um, which, according to this letter, changes everything through redemption. It's a great redemptive act. And that's the direct link to our current series on incarnation. But then there's a third theme that comes out at the end, which is about the Holy Spirit, who is sent into our hearts. And understanding a bit more about those three themes, um, and understanding what they're saying, will help you, I think it will help you love other people and get on with other people during the Christmas period, if you need to do that. But if you don't have a problem with getting on with people over Christmas, which is great, these verses will help you to love others even more deeply all the time, even when they might be hard to love. Because loving others throw, flows from learning how to live by faith as heirs adopted into God's family. And you might say that living by faith as adopted children in God's family isn't just for Christmas. So, first of all, um, what's Paul talking about here with all these heirs and these slaves and this adoption? It's confusing, it's a bit confusing because um, Paul is writing to both Jewish people and non-Jewish Gentile people. Sometimes it's hard to work out who he's thinking about, but actually he means both. One or the other might be uppermost in his mind at a given moment, but never exclusively so. So they're both there, held in his mind. And the main flow is something like this. Heirs are like slaves, because although they stand to inherit an estate, until they inherit, they're just like slaves, because they have no power to order their lives. They have no freedom, and so on. And Paul is partly meaning the Jews here, but only partly. And until Jesus came into the world, the Jews themselves were, in a way, underage. In effect, in a kind of spiritual slavery to the law, and the commandments. Um, the non-Jews, who are people, you could say, more like most of us, were also, in effect, slaves because they or we, before we knew Jesus, were also in kind of bondage and enslaved to what he calls the elemental spiritual forces or principalities of the world. 
And that means that they, we were in the control of a spirit in opposition to God. Something very dark, even though we probably didn't realize that it was dark. And then Paul broadens it out and brings in adoption. This is where it gets a bit confusing, but it's typically the kind of thing Paul does. Slaves, like orphans, are brought into the family of God as full members, as children. Slaves become legally adopted children, which means they're also then heirs. And it's a powerful picture in the world in which he's writing, because slavery, of course, was really common. And slaves could be redeemed and paid, sort of bought out of slavery, and come to inherit and become part of a family. It did happen. But the key point is that none of this can happen. You're thinking of this as a sort of big metaphor, if you like, slavery and freedom, adoption. None of that can happen um, by the heirs, sort of through the will and the actions of the heirs or the slaves on their own. Um, the second verse says, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. The heir doesn't set the agenda or choose the time. And similarly, the slaves are only adopted into the family through God's sovereign choice. The fourth verse, but when the time set had fully come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. But again, this is when the set time had fully come. The time is set by God. And of course, this, this metaphor, this grand metaphor of heirs and slaves takes in and encompasses all people, everybody potentially, every human being. And that leads to the main theme for, for our Christ, Christmas season, the OR Incarnate series, because it leads us into the second theme, which is summed up with that same verse that I was just reading. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. God sent his son, born of a woman. Um, and it's just, it's so rich, actually, this passage. Um, let's just draw a few things from that one verse, which is laden with good tidings of comfort and joy, is it not? First, God, again, is the prime mover. God chooses the time, the set time, of the new to break into the old by sending his son when this set time had fully come. And Paul wants to, to kind of stress that God, this God is involved in history and the lives of his children. Because in power, this God brings Jesus into the world at the time that this God chooses to set people as slaves free and to, the welcome, and to welcome them into his family. Our condition, the situation that we're in as a human race, it's not hopeless but it's not hopeless because God takes the initiative. He doesn't kind of wait for humanity to come up with the ultimate self-help project and then maybe come along and support it, throw his lot in with it. No, but God comes up with the project himself and then he sends his spirit to fill us with assurance that we're included in this project. And then another thing, a second thing that comes out of that one, that verse, is that the son is sent, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus was completely human, and completely, completely. 
This meant he lived his life in total solidarity with us, with those also under the law. And without that, Jesus wouldn't have been qualified to die in our place and redeem us because he wouldn't have been human, properly human. And redemption, of course, is in that same verse, isn't it? He understood and he experienced our emotions. He experienced fear and anything you can think of, loneliness, doubt, temptation. And ultimately, he was abandoned on the cross by his father. He didn't sin, but even so, he fully belonged to our broken world. He didn't kind of float through it in some detached way. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. Other well-known words in the Bible put it like this. For unto us a child is born, who is wonderful counsellor, almighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now, those four titles, here applied to Jesus, who was fully human, can only be legitimately applied to God. He is almighty God, yet he is born. Nothing like this is seen in the other major religions, world religions. Jesus is a human being, and he's God. And if you think about it, that means, it should mean that you can't just like Jesus, if he's almighty God. I mean, what a ridiculous concept. People who met him, as recorded in the New Testament, never responded mildly in a kind of lukewarm way. They were either scared of Jesus, or angry with him, or they worshipped him. No one just said, he's so inspiring, he makes me want to live a better life, I like him. Nobody said that about Jesus. And if God has really been born in a manger, the chances are he'll know personally what you've been through. I know that you weren't born in a manger, but you know what I mean. Other religions don't have a doctrine of God who truly understands you from the, as it were, the inside of your experience. There's always a sense of the God being transcendent and transcending everything and slightly outside, but our God understands us, understands us from the inside of our experience. Jesus suffered. He had to be courageous. He was abandoned and betrayed by friends. He was crushed by injustice. He was tortured and he died. Jesus possessed the, you might say, the infinite height of being almighty God, yet became one of us at that first Christmas with its manger, its poor people, the shepherds, and the wise men who bowed down. He became kind of enmeshed in our condition in order to know our darkness. And it's no coincidence that Jesus is called the light who came into the world. Remember that we were in a state of darkness. We were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world, as Paul says. And when you're enslaved and in darkness, you can't supply the light, kind of by definition. If there is going to be light to reveal things as they truly are, to provide enlightenment, it has to come from outside. Jesus comes as that light because we are too spiritually blind to find our own way. So we've looked briefly at slaves and heirs and adoption, and we've looked a bit about God sending Jesus as a human, but almighty God at the appointed time. 
But then there is this third point, which is really important because it kind of brings it all to life for us, which is that God isn't like a turtle. Verse 6. Because you are his sons, his children, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. Now, when I was about, um, about 11, there was a relatively stressful, maybe even a traumatic kind of period in, in our family because my dad, who was in the RAF, was posted um, to go abroad to a desert island on his own for a year. And this was a key time in my life. I'd just gone to secondary school, and he had to go away. And it was a great sacrifice um, for the whole family to, to lose dad and a great sacrifice on his part. It was obviously really hard for our mum. And I remember granddad, yet the one with the temper but the sense of humour, saying to me that I would have to be the father for a while. But I was only 11. I mean, this was a big ask. But then in the middle of his trip away, he was allowed to come back for three weeks or something for Christmas. And the excitement was palpable. It was one of the best childhood Christmases I can remember, perhaps the best. So many amazing presents. I remember getting a diving watch. I mean, as if I would ever have used a diving watch, but I just thought, as an 11-year-old, it was the coolest thing. And a, um, an Akai reel-to-reel tape recorder, which was so cool. And actually, that started me off, me off as um, someone with a recording studio, because I remember having that Akai in my first studio a few years later. But there were also amazing stories he brought back of the things he'd been doing on this desert island. And one of, the, one of them was something they did um, when the turtle eggs hatched out, because this island they went to, called Mazira, is one of the places in the world where the most loggerhead turtles in the whole world go to lay their eggs. And the turtles, the mother turtles, then leave the eggs, they go away, and the eggs hatch out and are left entirely, the baby turtles are left entirely to themselves. And Dad and a few of his colleagues in the RAF would go and help these baby turtles, turtlings? they're called. These little creatures get safely from these holes in the sand into the waves, into the surf, while birds, various pred predatory birds were trying to catch them and so on. And Dad told me this story. And it made me think, um, as I was thinking about this passage uh, a few days ago, um, because unlike the turtle parents, my dad actually did come back eventually and took his rightful place again in caring for our family. And similarly, God is not like the turtle who leaves her young completely on their own to cope with whatever life throws at them. God doesn't leave his people on their own. He sends the Holy Spirit to confirm our new reality as, as being his children. And we actually need this spirit in us to call God Father. And he comes into our hearts to make that possible. So we, we slaves are adopted children But we're not children who instantly become spiritual giants. Because we do mess up, don't we? We know that. But God is there for us, and the Spirit points us to him. And this calling out to him, Abba, Father, that's also striking, because that's an Aramaic word which takes us right back to the Gospels, as seen in Mark. And these are words that, the sort of words that Jesus used. It's clearly a really important idea to Paul 
inspired in him by the Spirit because it points right back to Jesus himself and the language that Jesus used and the truth that Jesus spoke. And it's very important in the early church that Paul is writing to. Um, many of us feel unworthy, but Jesus' Spirit gives us permission to approach Father, the, the Father as he did and call him Dad. It gives us a kind of, gives us permission, gives us a dignity to be able to approach the Lord God, Yahweh, and call him Dad. And then he ends on another really important verse, just the very last verse, which is the verse second, which is sort of tucked on the end. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. He has to say son in the world they were in because sons did the inheriting, as I was saying at the beginning. But actually, that means, in reality, son or daughter. And since you are a son or a daughter, God has made you also an heir. Now, the thing about the, the you in this verse, unlike the you's in the previous verses, um, we don't get this in English, because English is this kind of simplified language. But in, in, in the Greek in which it was written, the you in the earlier verses is a plural you. But here, it's a singular, second person you. That's very striking. But we miss it so easily in, in the English, don't we? And it's just so meaningful. Um, this is the good news that will allow us to love others better at Christmas and beyond. Because it's saying that you, Will, you, Steve, you, Margaret, you, Andrew, you, Anne, you, Rebecca, all of you, you, David, you, Penny, all of us are, each of us is a child of God. Loving others, even when they're hard to love, is initiated and made possible by the Spirit of God. I mean, if I'd known the Spirit of God when I was a teenager, when I made them, maybe I wouldn't have made them watch the magic flute. Who knows? It would have transformed my relationship with my, my grandfather. And I have such fond memories of him now. Obviously, we'll fail sooner or later if we try to do it on our own, just as I did then. But we're not on our own. We have been adopted and we've become children of God. We're heirs to the ultimate inheritance. The very best inheritance is ours. And we're given his spirit of life who kindles a kind of new life within us. And it was all made possible because at the set time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as children. Let's just pray about that and think about that for a moment. So Holy Spirit, you who enable us to call God Father or Dad, speak to us now and help us to, to really get it if we haven't or to get it again that each of us is your child. Help us to understand that we are your children, that this is personal, each of us is your child. 
be with us now as we just ponder what that means. With all of the things that we wrestle with, all of the, the joys and the sorrows of life that we may carry. We thank you, Father, that you took the initiative. You didn't leave human, hum, the human race on its own. That at this set time, you sent Jesus, born of Mary, to be in this world. Just spend a few moments asking the Holy Spirit to, to dwell within you afresh, if you like, to fill you afresh. <laughs> 